word of caution for employers. And this is what the Career Optimism Index says. The average organization needs to understand that half of its people are, are ready to walk. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode. Today I have for you John Woods, PhD who is the chief academic officer and provost over at the University of Phoenix. He holds a PhD in higher education administration from Bowling Green State University, as well as a master's of arts and a bachelor's of arts from Carleton University. Now back to John, he supports the University of Phoenix Career Institute, which was created to address broad, persistent, and systematic barriers to career advancement through research-based solutions and impactful partnerships that break down of barriers that Americans face in their careers. The Institute just launched its third annual Career Optimism Index, which is a comprehensive study of American workers' career perceptions. And we're going to dig into that a bit today. John, welcome to Lead the Team. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate uh, you having me on today. Man, I've been looking forward to this and diving into this really interesting research that you've all been conducting. Uh, but before we do that, let's talk football. What is that football behind you in your office? <laughs> right uh, that football is, uh, it was a gift actually. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald, who uh, was a receiver for the Cardinals and who resigned, resigned, uh, retired uh, yeah. in the last year or so. He's actually a Phoenix alum. And I was lucky enough to, to meet him several times over the last few years. He's spoken at a couple of our graduation ceremonies and he signed and gave me an NFL football. Mm -hmm. And uh, we count him, as I said, as one of our proud alums. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thankfully, uh, he performed really well in his career, scored a lot of fancy football points for me. Shout out to Larry. Now, what <laughs> is the story behind the voicemail? Well, uh, we were fortunate enough to work with Larry uh, for a number of years, uh, again, as one of our alumni. And um, he told the story when when uh, he was at the University of Phoenix and uh, approaching graduation. He told the story that he left college early to pursue his professional career, but he made a promise to his mother that he would finish college at some point. And his mother passed away. And uh, he, the story he told us was that he had one of those old answering machines that we don't use anymore. We had calls go to a you know digital voicemail, but he had one of those old answering machines and he had a message on it from his mother. He would play periodically just to hear her voice after she passed away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were all really, really, uh, you know, emotional hearing that story. And uh, and he said that uh, his mother inspired him to, to finish college. And that story became really a, the focal point of a, a television ad that we did with Larry for the University of Phoenix, because so many working adults put off, you know, their dreams, they defer their education, they want to get back to it at some point. And, mm -hmm. and Larry provided, I think, an inspiration for a lot of adults to finish something that uh, 
maybe they'd put off and maybe put off for too long. And his inspiration uh, came from his mother. And and that yeah. ad had him playing the answer machine message from his his mother to hear her voice. So you can imagine uh, the, you know how emotional that that is and was for Larry and became for all of us and how it became part of uh, an ad that I think a lot of people could identify with making a promise or wanting to finish something and, and, and following through on that. I love it. And you know, people think of football players like Larry Fitzgerald as a football inspiration of what he did on the field, but it turns out his mom and what he did in the classroom, uh, turned out to be equally inspiring, maybe even more inspiring beyond the field. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when we came out of COVID, uh, enough a couple of years ago that we could have, one of our first commencement ceremonies in a long time uh, in Phoenix at uh, Chase Field, which is uh, a professional baseball stadium. Uh, Larry was our speaker. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he wow. uh, he did a great job and and people really identify with him. He's a, you know, he's a local hero. People come from all over the country to graduate from the University of Phoenix, but certainly those in Phoenix uh, recognize him and, and really look up to him and he just did a fantastic job. Well, so let's, let's move. So great. Thank you for sharing that, John. Y'all that was unscripted. So we weren't really planning to talk about that. <laughs> it's amazing what something, and I just want to add that, you know, John's like, those of you that can't sit on video, John's got a lot of interesting things hanging up in, in his office and that football just caught my eye. So your your background as a leader can lead to all kinds of interesting conversations if you're thoughtful about, you know, what you're putting back there and what a great thing to find a dose of inspiration behind you. Now let's let's fast forward into this career optimism index because I love optimism uh, a lot and I feel like it's something that's important as business leaders that we foster in ourselves and others. And I love this idea of having a comprehensive study of American workers' career perceptions. But why? Why is the University of Phoenix and your team, why are you getting into this and, and what have you discovered? Yeah, it's a great question. I think probably our motivation is that um, we've served working adults since day one, you know, founded almost 50 years ago expressly for that purpose. And, mm -hmm. and I believe uh, the only institution at its time that was founded just to serve the working adult. And mm -hmm. so we've got decades of experience doing just that. And it made a lot of sense for us coming out of, again, pandemic, to try and better understand the perceptions of working adults related to their careers and their career prospects. So we took a scientific uh, research approach to trying to learn about that in the first year. In the second year, we added a dimension to the survey, which we've continued, which is employer perceptions as well. And as you can imagine, some of the differences between what employees or workers are thinking and, and what their, their organizations or companies are thinking. Sure, always. Present, present, present some interesting <laughs> differences. Yes. Uh, the, the results can really help us, we think, do an even better job of what we've always been committed to, mm -hmm. which is serving working adults, but additionally serve as a mechanism to partner with like-minded organizations that want to improve the prospects for working mm -hmm. adults and improve career prospects for different people. 
and particularly uh, different groups of people uh, that may see themselves uh, disadvantaged in, in different ways. So by way of the partnerships we have, we, we think we can we can be part of uh, some of the solutions. Okay. And so sounds intriguing. And so after that, okay, so you have this group, you've done this for three years. What's the biggest light bulb that's gone off and, and looking yeah. at, this, at this topic? Yeah, from the first year through to the third year, I think the biggest takeaway is that Americans are optimistic and not just optimistic, highly optimistic about their career prospects. And, and just if you take a step back from that for a second and think about all that we've been through, uh, you think about uh, you know, the changes in our economy due to technology and automation and, and how some of that has resulted in a lot of uh, displaced jobs. And mm -hmm. if you uh, you know look at the pandemic and the number of people in different sectors of the economy who were overworked, uh, the the mental health issues in our society, despite all of that, Americans are highly highly optimistic about their career prospects. Now, what's changed from year one to year three is that they've become uh, less optimistic about their career prospects because of their organizations and more because of a faith or a belief in themselves. And so there's become, become a bit more of a disconnect over the three years between that optimism being something that we can attribute to how well they're being treated or feel uh, their position because of what their employers are doing. And it's now more about them. And, and uh, they see themselves as optimistic because of what they can do in spite of maybe their wow. employer. Yeah. So year one, okay, I'm feeling positive, optimistic about my career prospects inside my company. So I can get promoted. I can find another opportunity if, uh, as, as I progress or if I experience problems in my current role. Three years later, they're saying, well, I'm optimistic about my career prospects because I can know I can just, I can just quit and leave and go find another better job somewhere else. Yeah. And in fact, a whole bunch of folks would say exactly that, Ben, that uh, they feel like they could find another job. Uh, they feel like they would even leave their current job without another one lined up because of that optimism. Mm. Uh, and uh, that that feeling of, of um, almost being a free agent, that okay. it's not because the development or the mentoring that you're providing me as my boss or my organization it's not because of the upskilling or reskilling you're giving me. It's that I feel mm -hmm. empowered. I I could you know do okay even if I left and give me a little bit of severance and offer me a bit of severance. And I the chances of me leaving even without having another job lined up go you much higher even. Mm -hmm. So people feeling like this is still something that's very much in their control. Uh, and wow. and and the other side of that coin, I think. Uh, you know, word of caution for employers is if your people are that ready and willing to leave because of what you're not doing, look at the impact of that. Look at the impact of unfilled open positions, costs of recruiting, costs of training and onboarding, um, and that churn in your workforce, all because there's a disconnect between what you think you're providing and what they really believe they're getting. And that free agent market can cause you know, some uh, pretty huge costs for organizations. Oh, the cost of, yeah, we talk a lot about that here. You are preaching to the choir. 
because we spend a lot of time talking about the cost of turnover and it is catastrophic for organizations. And your findings are demonstrating that it's probably higher than uh, most companies ever could have imagined and, and the dangers there for them. Yeah, with, with 53%, uh, this is what the Career Optimism Index says, with 53% of American workers actively looking for a new job or expecting to do so in the next six months, mm-hmm. the average organization, just back away from that number for a second, the average organization needs to understand that half of its people are, are ready to walk. So it's Career Optimism Index for the employees. But this is a career pessimism index for companies. It can be, but these things that are in in so much uh, demand and and required mm. for workers to feel uh, uh, loyal, uh, they're mm. not necessarily that expensive to provide, and they're certainly cheaper where they do come with costs than the, as you said, catastrophic costs of turnover. Uh, it's mentoring. It's having somebody who takes an interest in your career advancement and and proactively helps you mm-hmm. with that. That's people you already have deploying their time a bit differently. It's mm-hmm. uh, access to this upskilling and reskilling, which every organization claims to provide, but sometimes the workers don't know it's there or don't feel it's it's really uh, something the organization well supports. And mm-hmm. and so if you just solve for those couple of things right there, making sure that people uh, felt like they had a, a career mentor who could help them with their career trajectory, their career planning. And if there were upskilling and reskilling opportunities, much of this would be uh, a you know better set of numbers, I think, for for both the employee and the employer. Yeah, it sounds like optimism a lot is is associated like it, from a an employee standpoint. Am I making progress in my career? And progress can feel like someone's mentoring me or I'm understanding things and I'm, I'm, am I growing and training and a degree are great ways to go about doing that. And, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, some might, might think, oh, you know, this is about more people going back to school for degrees and it, and it really doesn't have to be that, uh, you know, clearly there are much shorter paths uh, for workers to get uh, skilled than taking a whole degree. And they may already have a whole degree. So it might be a short course. It might be, as you said, some sort of you know training program. Uh, content in, in terms of training is fairly ubiquitous these days. You can get it anywhere and, and uh, access that training content tends to be really, really affordable. But it's, mm marrying up the right content with the, with the people who need it, someone taking an interest in them uh, using it and using it to get ahead in their career. That's, that's the, the value of content is how it's used. Where are you seeing companies getting this right in terms of what they're doing? So again, I, I think um, this whole free agent uh, nature that we talk about uh a company that gets right, I can't name certain companies that we believe are are getting it right because we haven't cut the data by 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 company exactly. Yeah. Um, but where a company gets it right, we know what that looks like. And we know it it has uh, the you know the hallmarks of a of a culture where people feel valued and important and included 
And, and there's an awful lot of talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. The belonging is really, really key. Mm-hmm. And the feeling of belonging is one of feeling uh, valued, one of uh, you know, feeling invested in. And uh, where companies have it right, people have a strong sense of belonging. And it's paid back to the employer, mm-hmm. both in discretionary work effort, but also in loyalty. So yeah, we're, we're, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're advising companies to think about the spend they're already incurring on, mm-hmm. on things like training and development, uh, on uh, DEIB, and, and to really channel those investments in different ways and, and be better at communicating that these investments are being made for their workers. Because some of the gap right. is just a differential between perception and reality. So true. I mean, it's amazing, amazing to me how employees don't often understand the cost of the programs that they're in. And they don't realize because that, that hey, that's a form of compensation. All these things we're talking about, you're being, if someone's nurturing your career in your company, that's an investment. And they know, this company knows, and someone in, that, in your company's thought that, oh my gosh, we're pumping all this money into fanning and he might just leave us next year right uh, they're taking the risk right and, and you know it can be about degrees certainly we we work with a lot of organizations that have recognized the the value of of kind of longer term education married with shorter term upskilling and a degree can be a great retention tool when someone says i will pay for your degree and and they give you four or five thousand dollars a year towards your tuition um that's a you know a really good retention tool for an organization yeah a great practical resource absolutely so we've got we've got hundreds and hundreds of relationships with organizations that have recognized that and there are things you learn within your degree that will will help you but probably more than anything that's a a a strong you know sign that Mm -hmm. the uh, organization is loyal to the worker and and it engenders the same back Fantastic. And so if you get out your crystal ball and you're looking at year four, and I know these results are just coming out now, but you're looking at next year. What are you seeing if you uh, peer as you peer into the crystal ball? I think um, the survey, you know, the career optimism index itself has uh, received an awful lot of uh, attention. The awareness has really grown. And our ability uh, now in year three with it to work with other organizations um, mm-hmm. to uh, cast more light on these issues, like SHRM, the group that oh. uh, mm-hmm. oversees uh, you know HR uh, for for the whole world and supports HR professionals. Um, a partnership we have with Jobs for the Future. I, I think the survey itself has allowed us to uh, develop some partnerships, which will extend its awareness. And so I'm actually really hopeful that the growth in awareness will have employers take notice uh, at an even higher level in the coming year. And that some of these uh, I'll call systemic issues begin to, to really you know get addressed. I sure hope so. It would be a much different world that we live in if companies and their organizations really understood what their roles were in retention and giving purpose and meaning and career development and having a track for that. And the other thing that's happening, I think, Ben, is that 
there's more and more uh, interest and on some level concern with automation and AI uh, and these sure. uh, artificial intelligence, these sorts of things where um, the, the, the worker today has a concern that they're going to be replaced. Mm-hmm. And, and employers are looking at the same time to leverage those technologies to be more efficient. Uh, what I think happens in the future is that uh, those technologies do get leveraged. It changes the nature of work. It gives okay. humans a greater opportunity to work with humans while the things that machines can do, do more of. And, and so I don't think it, it results in a, a you know, huge displacement that's permanent, but it does result in a, a big work shift. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Do you feel like there's a close association with the uh, unemployment rate and career optimi- and the career optimism index? Certainly. We've got a really, I think, historic low unemployment rate. The participation rate in the workforce is, is high. But what's mm-hmm. happening within those numbers is a lot of churn, mm-hmm. uh, job hopping. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there aren't a lot of people sitting on the sidelines. And some of the people that are sitting uh, on the sidelines um, you know, left during the pandemic and, and haven't re-entered. Um, but the unemployment rate is is at a, a near historic low right now. So the optimism is part of, as you suggest, there are, there are jobs out there that are going unfilled. And if I'm not completely happy in the one I have or with the employer I have, uh, there are other opportunities. So if the unemployment rate starts to go up, which at some point it will, because that's just nature of things, you would see probably career optimism start to decline. You would. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think that, um, uh, again, folks right now, this this notion that uh, such a high percentage would leave without even knowing where they're going next, that never mm-hmm. used to be the case. You know, in, in uh, yeah, <laughs> that's you know, a rarity. That's a blood. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine any of my parent parents uh, friends, for example, saying, oh, "I'm quitting my job," and and oh, what are you going to do next? Oh, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, would, it would never happen. Yeah. I can't even I can't even remember any of my friends ever doing that. But that's happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's amazing. So it's great for leaders to be thinking about, though. Uh, as as a as a reference tool that they can use in planning their year, planning their resources, and for employees to consider for themselves. Now, I, I don't want to close the interview out without having some time to talk a little bit about your interesting career. So, when's the time that you had an unexpected twist or failure, and how did it lead to your success or growth on down the road? Yeah, I'll, um, maybe one quick story on that, Ben. I. Um... I, I was handed a task once by a by a boss I had at, at, who was a CEO, and uh, he basically I, I think handed me um, uh, a task that was based on a, a management playbook, mm. and he he said, uh, "Do you, are you able to take the people in your organization and 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 rank them from strongest to weakest based on how you mm. do performance evaluations and how you look at their work?" And I said. Yeah, I think I am. Why do you ask? And and his response was, "Well, I want you to cut the bottom ten percent." 
And, and so the task uh, given to me without really uh, opportunity early in my career to push back uh, or, the, or to, uh, you know, do any different was to do exactly that. And um, I, I, I thought about it for a couple of days and, and uh, was more complicated than you might think because the, the, the worker group that we're talking about here, they were faculty. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and, and, and so in higher education, faculty aren't treated that way at all. And, and so after a few days of thinking about it, I, I, um, I went back to him. I said, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to ask the faculty to help me implement a performance uh, management system that leads to merit pay. And uh, in in the new reality, some of them will get 10, 12% raises where they've only ever had two, 3% raises. Uh, But Hmm. some would get 0% raises and be put on performance plans. And I'm going to ask the faculty to help me design it. And uh, he wasn't all that that supportive. And, And I think... Uh, my job might have been on the line, <laughs> but, 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 but it <laughs> like if you don't out. get this right. Guess what? <laughs> you're in the top, you're in the, you're in the bottom 10% yourself. Right. But it worked wow. out. And what it did was it, uh, it engendered an awful lot of trust uh, from the faculty who were frontline employees dealing with our customer, the student. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they felt like they could contribute to what was being designed uh, I had final say on it, of course, but they were big participants in in building it, and uh, we did implement it. We went from a a system where ever, ever like I said, everybody got a two and a half or a three percent raise every year, where now people are getting amazing raises, raises, mm-hmm. and and were motivated to do more and more and to stay longer. Uh, and the people who were getting no raises were mm-hmm. told exactly what they needed to do to improve, and they were. Uh, they were supported. Like we talked earlier, Ben, about training and upskilling and developing. Uh, some of those people made it and some of them didn't, but at least they had awareness and they had development and the support to get where they needed to go. Uh, as I said, I kept my job uh, and by not quite doing what I was supposed to do. So I guess the future lesson in all of that is there are a lot of different ways to to do the same things. And some some of them are are can be really productive and healthy and you look back on as as hallmarks, even in in, in your career of, of things you really learn from, and then there there are situations that um, you know the exact same thing could have been achieved a different way, and I think it would have been very damaging for the organization and for relationships across the the organization. Man, John, I love that story. It almost sounds like like Jack Welch from the GE days entered in the education system. It was. It was. Uh, 10%. I, I want you to buy, cut the bottom ten percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was. It was Welchian. Wow! And so, in that moment, you were able to step back between stimulus and reaction, which is just saying, "Yes, sir." Or yes, ma'am. I will go cut the temper. I will figure out. I will cut them. You were able to say what's a different way, and, and you then you approach the faculty, and what in the world did you tell them? Like, hey, look, I could just we could just cut ten percent of you, but here's another possibility. I mean, what was the? Yeah, I I, I didn't go. I, obviously, I didn't go in and say I've been told to do X, Y, or Z. I I really owned the project and mm-hmm. said. 
I, I don't think it's acceptable uh, to any of you that you ever, only ever get a couple of percent increase every year. Oh, and, okay. and that's how we spend our, our, our budget allocation by, by smoothing it out across this group, you know, like, like peanut butter. I think some of you think you do fantastic work and you, and you do. And I think some of you may even think you do, you know, better work. We don't want to maybe mm-hmm. go too far down this hole, but some of you probably think you do phenomenally better work than others or work harder than others. Uh, and I would sure love to find a way to reward that. And I would sure love to find a way to reward the people who think I, that they're maybe not doing quite as much or quite as well, but they sure would like to do better and get the help to learn how. Wow. And, and so I said, you know, the budget is going to be the budget, but some of you next year will get a 10 or a 12% raise. And, and if you'd like to work with me to figure out how to do that, uh, I, I think there are things we should work on together that we should measure. There are systems we should build for collecting that data. And there are protocols we should follow to reward those of you who are doing amazing work and help those of you who, who might want to do that work also. Yeah, I love it. So many nuggets in there for leaders. Yeah. So instead of going in and communicating, hey, 10% are out of here, unless we find another way, you took a step back and you found a more uh, carrot-like way to communicate it based on bonus possibilities. And I suspect you got a, you got a lot of more you got a lot of, you got a lot more interest in yeah. helping create a, a, a solution. And I, you know, place. I get now twenty years uh, or more in the rearview mirror to kind of reflect back on what happened mm-hmm. in the moment. You, you're not thinking through it quite so clearly, uh, but <laughs> looking back on it now with all that time having passed, I know some people left who who um, you know didn't want to be a part of that. And I know some people who are about to leave maybe stayed because they wanted that and they knew how it would play out for them. Mm. And, and so call, you know, I'm sure we, we probably retain some of the people that we were about to lose who were amazing. And, and I think some of the people that were maybe, you know, not as engaged as they needed to be or should have been left and mm-hmm. voluntarily left. Uh, so I, I do think, you know, 20 years later, it, it probably worked out uh, really well, as I said, has turned out in a couple of different ways to be a great set of lessons for me. Yeah. Wow. All right. Starting to put a bow on this interview, man, it's been a fun one so far. What was your first job and how does it influence your leadership today? So um, growing up, um, my dad worked in a, a steel company and eventually started his own machine shop. Mm. When he started a machine shop, I was probably 12 or 13. And my job for summers and weekends and spring breaks uh, was to work in the machine shop. And I pushed a broom. uh, I I climbed inside machines and cleaned out a bunch of heavy shovels full of metal filings, um, wiped a lot of things down inside the machines. I, I worked really, really hard. Um, when I did all that, I, I didn't realize till much later, there wasn't somebody who did it when I didn't do it. So the, the guys mm. who were well-trained and, and had technical skills and were running those machines, in some cases, programming the running of those machines, mm. they had to do that work because I wasn't there. There was, no, there was no cleaning person just because I wasn't there. I was it because I needed to be kept busy during my time off school. Mm-hmm. 
So the, the lesson I, I learned again, not at the time, but many years later was um, uh, the two, one, obviously the value of hard work because it was really hard work, but um, two, being willing to do things uh, that uh, um, yeah, you, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't not do them. You wouldn't just expect somebody else to do them. If you're not willing to do them, why would somebody else, no matter what position you're in? I was the owner's son and I was climbing in there. And back in those days, I think probably some of the people who worked there thought, oh, he's going to run this place one day. But if that, had, and it didn't happen, but if that had ever happened, I would have, you know, probably had the reputation of doing things, uh, you know, that I maybe didn't have to do. There was no thing I wouldn't do, you know, that I wouldn't expect you to do kind of thing. It's powerful. Uh, my first job as an industrial engineer, I came out of school thinking, you know, Hey, I want to sit in my office and do Excel and analyze this thing, analyze the operations of this, of this organization. My boss was like, no, Ben, you're going to the plant floor right now and you're going to work with the operators. And in fact, I worked for a, a athletic apparel company, Russell corporation. My boss, I was evaluating like sewing lines and whatnot. He had me, the first thing I did was learn to be a sewing operator and I, yeah, you can't ask somebody to do to do a really? job you yourself are not willing to do. And uh, again, I didn't end up pursuing that uh, you know that path. But if I had those those people in that plant would have known that from the age of twelve or thirteen, I I worked my tail off. You get that respect, and thus you'd probably get more communication. Yeah, like he he understands. For me, you know, part of engineering is evaluating pay. In the, in the in industrial engineering settings. And I mean, before I was going to put in anything that was going to reduce anybody's pay after that, I was going to make really sure that I uh, knew what I was talking about. And, um, you know, I didn't want to do anything heavy handedly. Yeah. I, I knew what it was like to go home with your back aching, having, having been over a sewing machine and I did it in Mexico. Yeah. Man, Honduras. So it was a different, I mean, it was, it was a wild time, but yeah, no, I can relate to that. John, man, we, we covered so many great things today. Uh, what's your parting thought for our listeners? Oh, geez. Um, you know, there is no uh, one set of things that uh, makes somebody a, a really good leader. I think um, the, the best things I've ever learned and, and written about leadership are, are about situational leadership and, mm, and being nice. able to, read a situation really well. So if you're a good read of people and a good read of situations and you apply the right tools the right way, um, you know, that's better than any kind of uh, uh, set playbook of what mm -hmm. leadership looks like. Thanks for coming on the show, John. Thanks, Ben. I enjoyed it. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of The Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. 
To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.